0: Yeah. It was like a high-five, switch seats move. I, I really, I really like that. That was impressive. You guys missed it. There was like a high-five, and then they switched seats. And I'm like, oh, that's a good move. Well, well, welcome to Calvary Chapel. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. And to those that are sitting on the other side in the cafe, good morning. Bless that you're with us. And um, this morning in second service, we have a, a really a beautiful a beautiful little celebration here. Um, many of you guys know Kevin McEvers, right? And you know Aaron Wilson. I'd like to have both of them come up here for a minute. Aaron, make your way on up and go ahead and bring your brides. Your brides better come up too. i going to have to pray over you guys. So these men have been serving faithfully. Pastor Steve, if you would come up and when Pastor Bill gets here, come on, bring them up. These, these men have been serving faithfully for a long time, so much that I can't remember. And we read the Bible and it tells us that the Lord will appoint and raise up those elders, right, Um, in the church that will be, if you look at the Greek term, the idea behind it is overseer, one that will help lead, one will help guide and spiritually be there to minister, right, to the body, to the flock. And, you know, these two men have been serving for a number of years and their hearts has been their hearts have been just completely open. I'd like to read a passage to you in First Timothy three. I'd like you all to turn in your Bibles to First Timothy three. It's very clear what the Bible teaches. And this passage is also used of, for an overseer pastor, but, but in, in context, it can be used for any leader within the church. And we believe that elders are leaders, right? There's deacons in the church, and those deacons are the ones that typically, uh, as we read in Acts chapter 6, they would not only wait tables and do some of those things like that, but then there's the actual spiritual aspect as well of men that will come alongside and minister, and certainly their wives that are part of that family, right? Because they're their helpmates, now, we understand and we don't lay hands on women in that capacity because Scripture is very clear about that. But we do look at the men in their lives and understand that, that they're being called that way, and their wives certainly have honored that in their calling and decision. So please look at 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, we know that in the Greek that term means overseer. He desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. Now, again, many people say, well, wait a minute, what if I was married once or I'm remarried? This is speaking in context, a one-man, one-woman marriage. This is not talking about uh, the aspect of if I was married and something has happened, I'm widowed, what have you, remarried, something like that. That's not what this is saying. Temperate, sober-minded of good behavior, hospitable and able to teach not given to wine, right? Very clear. We don't have anybody that's in leadership here drink any alcohol whatsoever, so that any time needed, we can minister. If we must go to the hospital or something like that, we never want to be in a situation where we're intoxicated, where we can't minister that family in need, especially if somebody is overcoming an alcohol addiction themselves, right? Not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and snare of the devil. You know, one of the things that I I do purposely is I will talk to the wives many times when the husbands are not around. <laughs> and I will ask them, so tell me what they're really like. What do they like at home? Tell me about it. You know, are they, are they all in? Are they serving? Are they, do you believe their, their lives are surrendered unto the Lord? Are they submitting unto you as much as God has called you to submit unto them? And a lot of times, you know, we'll get, well, let's talk about that. Well, I'm, I'm proud to say this morning, that's not the conversations that we've had in the past with either of these ladies here. And so I think it's just a blessing for us all to acknowledge what God is doing, a moving of the Holy Spirit. And we're simply just acknowledging that, aren't we? I mean, we don't cause it. We don't have a control of it. But when we see God move on the hearts of people where there's a willingness, a humility, that's the biggest thing, right? We all know guys that know it all, that have to be the center of the attention. You know, they even during a study, you know, they got to constantly not, you know, hey, hey, honey, I'll, I'll reinterpret this for you, you know. We all know guys like that. That's not these guys. That's not their heart. You know, their heart is to always, you know, just to be submitted and to serve the Lord, whatever it looks like, whether it's cleaning a bathroom or whether it's sitting down and inviting you into their home and breaking bread with you. They're just, their desires to be all in in every ministry in any aspect they can be. So it's with that that we want to acknowledge the role and the office of an elder, really, upon both of these men. And what we want to do is invite you all, if you would, to please lay hands on them with us as we pray. And we're not just praying for them, but we're praying for their wives at the same time because we know there's spiritual warfare. We know there's attack. We know that these things happen. But God has raised up these two men, and we just want to pray for their faithfulness. Amen? Does that sound good? So why don't you guys stand up? Come on up. Try not to breathe on each other. <laughs> and uh, we have the air cleaner. We have all the stuff going on. I want these two guys to come up front? Their wives on the either side of them. We just want to lay hands on these guys, and if you feel led to do that, unto the Lord and the ladies, everybody can come up. Whatever you feel comfortable. If you want to, if you feel more comfortable seated, that's fine as well. But we just want to lay hands and acknowledge what God has done. Father, we come before you and we just thank you for these two men, Lord, that have given their hearts to you, Jesus, the desire to follow you and serve your church, Lord. And we pray, God, health and safety, protection for their families, for their wives, for their children, Lord. God, we just thank you for all that you're doing in their lives. And Lord, God, we trust and believe that, Lord, you will do a great work through their hearts and through their faith. Lord, again, cover them keep them. Build them up, Lord, and allow them to be used mightily for the kingdom of God. We ask and pray this in full faith and assurance that our God hears. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. and we do that in the witness of our pastors. If everyone could please open their Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, we've come as far as verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and one of the ushers or elders can bring you a Bible. So that's Philippians chapter 2. We've come as far as verse 12. All right. Now, we don't get too far within this first verse here where we see it says, therefore. And we know whenever there's a therefore, we have to say, what's it there for, right? But I'd encourage us to go back and remember the last few weeks and months that we've been in Philippians here, and we've looked at the first chapter and a half. What has God been saying to the Apostle Paul, to Pastor Paul here in Philippians? To a church, this word, this epistle is an epistle of encouragement, right? Not a single rebuke, other than you might say in chapter four with a couple ladies that were infighting, fighting, but besides that, not a simple or not a single rebuke at all to this church at Philippi. This letter is a word of encouragement for the church that's found righteous and faithful. He says, Therefore, it's because of the suffering that we've read about. It's in spite and because of the unity, striving together, that one mind in Jesus Christ, right? That together with God. In the gospel we've read about, right? Others focused. Having a surrendered heart and mind. Humbled. Obedient. Glorifying God. That's what Paul's been speaking about. Therefore, because of all of those things, those exhortations, now we read, my beloved, the very next word. This is Pastor Paul speaking to the bride of Christ, a pastor's heart. My beloved, my love, whom I have love. As you have always obeyed, what that would be if we could all say that, as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Please notice that. It's not what other people see. It's the truth behind that in the heart. I think of a marriage covenant that way. In your marriages, if you were outwardly uh, affectionate. You come into a church, or maybe a gathering, or friends, or work, or wherever, and, you know, you show affection. You're holding hands. Things are great, and, you know, you, you really have that unity in your marriage, the beautiful unity as Christ has given us as a picture of the covenant we have with God. But then you go into your house privately. You, the door gets closed behind you. No Nobody else is looking in, and, and you both retreat to your own rooms, privately, never to come together again, no intimacy, no conversation, almost two separate lives. Would you describe that as a Ephesians 5.22 marriage, a marriage as God has called out? Would Would that look like a covenant marriage? Or would that look like two singles that have come together under one roof? I think you get what we're saying or what I'm saying here. He says, you've always obeyed, not because other people are watching what you're doing. It's not religion. It's relationship. It's because you are living it out. And it's genuine. And you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about what other people see. It's about what God sees and the experience you have with the Lord that way. And he's not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He says, even more when I'm not around, when I'm not able to see your obedience, your faithfulness. He then says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If we took this word alone, and this was the only scripture that we held on to. It would be easy for someone to come out and say, well, guess I, I guess I got to strive and work to earn my salvation. But thank you, Jesus, we have the whole counsel of God all 66 books. We know clearly in context, what has this been looking about? It's about obedience, about encouraging the church in Philippi. What else is he talking about? About letting your works be seen and not just hidden, your obedience not to be seen by others, but to be lived out genuinely in your life, even when others aren't looking? He's talking about the outward, right? So think about it. Without the inward, right, only what's poured in can be poured out. We were saved by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's the faith that was in that allows it to be manifested, to be delivered out. And that's what we see here. Work out your own. Well, to work it out, something else had to be worked in. What was worked in you, if you're here this morning? Jesus. He's sovereign. He's offered the gift of redemption to every single believer and to unbelievers. And all he's asked us to do is to believe by faith, right? Romans, turn in your Bibles, look at Romans chapter 1. He lays it right out, right in the very beginning of chapter 1. I think it's verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who, what, does all the things outwardly as a religion so that people know that they love God. Is that what it says in your Bible? It's not what it says in my Bible. It said, for everyone who believes. That's the gospel. Belief. But your faith is only as good as what you place your faith in. He goes on to say, everyone who believes for first the Jew and then the Greek, right? For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, just so we can never miss it, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we know that Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture, does it, friends? We're Bereans. We study the Word of God line by line and verse by verse. So clearly, Scripture can't contradict Scripture. So what is he saying? He's saying when that inward work of salvation has begun... That it's incumbent upon you and I to work out the outbirth, the outworking of the salvation that was brought into our hearts through Christ Jesus in the way we live, in the way we speak, and the things we do, which is evidence of our salvation, isn't it? Not by name only. We don't play Christian, we don't play church, but we live it out. And we should with fear and trembling. Proverbs chapter 8 says to to fear God is what? It's to hate evil. It gives us the definition of what the very fear of God is. Fear that we're running the race, that we're not just a, a bystander that way. It's what comes out of it. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. Now we see the works where Now we're starting to get closer. Now we understand. It's God that does this work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, this isn't a contradiction. If anything, this is in harmony with what we read with James chapter 2, verse 23. What does he say there? That faith without works is dead. It's not salvinic. It's sanctification that he's describing here. It's sanctification. We're saved by faith, again, lest anyone should boast, but what that saving faith has done has produced a desire in us that outward to be faithful to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those that will listen. It's the outward profession of the inward transformation. And it's God who does that work. He says both to will and to do. Please circle do there in your Bibles. It's him that's the all. Au- he, God, is the author of this. And it's for his good pleasure talking about the righteous deeds. Now, verse 14, some of my, one of my favorite verses, some of your least probably favorite verses. I love this. Do all things without complaining and disputing. What's he saying here? He's saying, "Do all things without murmuring, right?" And that disputing is, is the idea of murmuring without a grudge, right? As though, I'll, yeah, absolutely, pastor, love to do that. Yes, honey, I love the list that you've given me this week. Absolutely, I, I desire to do it. You know, as you walk away, list keeps getting longer. He says, "Do all things." Please see that without complaining, without murmuring and disputing. I love this, that you become blameless without blame, that there is no blame, no condemnation, no blame, and harmless. This word is used three times, harmless, the word in the Greek, three times in the scripture we have the word harmless used. Very specific. It, it speaks to something being unmixed or without uh, mixing or, you know, changing without harm. Look, look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we, we read Jesus. He tells us, well, he's speaking to his disciples. We are his disciples. He was speaking at that time as he was physically manifested on earth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep, In the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. I want you to be tough, but I want you to be tender. Tough, but tender. The word can also mean simple, harmless here in the Greek. The idea that it's not built up into this something it's not ever meant to be, but simple. I like that. Children of God. If you're a born again believer in Christ, you are a child of God. If you're not a born again believer in Christ, the Bible teaches you're a creation of God. Without fault in the midst of a crooked and and perverse generation, among whom you shine as light in the world. You see, that's our, our role, that's our job. We're lights. When a boat was faring in the sea back in the day, I know our modern technology with sonar and GPS and radar, but a boat going ocean to ocean as it's crossing and going through bearings and different things like that was, you know, especially when stormy and gales, the stars you couldn't see in the sky to be directed, you might lose your way. And so what did they build on land. What's it called? You guys know it. It's a lighthouse. And that light could be seen from miles and miles away. And what did it do? It directed. It drew you to safety. It allowed you to know you were too close to land or, hey, you're passing it on your right, therefore you're going in the right direction. It gave you navigation. It gave you calibration. It calibrated you. That's what the Word of God does for us. That's what Jesus does. And he says that we, because Jesus Christ is the light in you and I, the light of the world that can never be hidden, we reflect Christ's life in our lives to others. And isn't that a beautiful picture of what we see in Revelation of what it's going to be like in heaven where there is no sun, S-U-N. We have the sun, S-O-N. And through him, the refraction of light, we will have the ability to see because of the walls and the, refla- the refraction of light off the walls. It will light up the city that we will dwell in heaven and the new heavens and new earth. Today, we are doing that very things. That very thing I meant to say. If we're light bearers, if we're light bearers, and he says, you shine as lights in this world. It doesn't mean there's not difficulty. It doesn't mean there's not suffering, affliction, oppression. In spite of all that, your very life is a light to a lost and dying world that more than anything need the hope of Jesus Christ, that need the ability to see through that darkness to find the good news of the true light of Jesus. Amen? Amen? He says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. What is that? That's the doctrine of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. That in itself, it contains true life, That's imparted to all men, all women. It's innate. It's built into the Word, the Word that you and I are reading, the doctrine of Christ. It possesses its truth. It is all truth. It is the definition and culmination of truth. There are many books written, but none of them inspired by God other than the Word you have before you. It is what directs us and enables us It is what rebukes us and corrects us. It is what gives us encouragement and hope that no matter what happens tomorrow, when we are in the will of God, we we can do anything through Christ who strengthens us. And we can have hope and joy. And our natural inclination should be to rejoice, to worship, and he says that, right? Because that's the idea behind it is that the word of God brings hope. It brings truth so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Now, this is important. Paul's going to speak about this in numerous places. We'll we'll look just at Galatians chapter 2, verse 2. We'll begin there. But look what he says. We're going to string pearls this morning. He tells us about a race that must be run, Maybe some of you were athletes and you competed. You know, some of you know, I like to play hockey. I, I enjoyed competing and playing hockey, right? Some of you had different sports. Or Paul uses the idea or illustration to help us understand of a race that exists before us. We don't get to use or choose the terrain. He doesn't ask our opinion, whether it's hilly or whether you know, you're know you running down down slope that way, downwards, or whether it's got a turn or a turn this way. No, he doesn't give us the terrain. He doesn't ask us what we think about the terrain before us. But he did tell us, you're in a marathon and you're on a race. Athletes seem to respond well. They understand having a goal and an aim before them. Now, if you run a race, a marathon before you, is it appropriate in the middle of a marathon, you have a beginning and an end, very clearly laid out and delineated. Is it appropriate in the middle of a marathon or at the beginning of a marathon, they blow the whistle, fire the gun, whatever, you start running, and you happen to recognize somebody over there, you you immediately stop, you run over, hey, how are you doing? And you start having a dialogue and a conversation, you know, when's the last time we got together in fellowship and broke bread? and you start talking, and you're going on and on, and, and you're like, isn't this some race? And you kind of took around, you turn around, you're looking at everybody. Boy, that guy, he, he's some runner. Are you running that race, or are you a spectator at that point? What have you become, right? It's truth. Truth sets us free. It's not always what we want to hear, but it's what we need to hear truth sets us free. Are you a spectator? Have you been put on a shelf? Are you running the race that's set before you? Galatians chapter 2 verse 2 says, and and I love how he he speaks this, he says, and I went up by revelation, that's God's calling, and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, those that would be embarrassed in public circles, he says, no, I, I speak to them. I I look at the late Billy Graham. Is that not what he did? A wonderful man who ran a race. You talk about a race. Billy Graham. Faithfulness, right? To run that race. He met with presidents, leaders, kings, people all over the world. But he had private audiences with them. It wasn't something that he went and, you know, hey, you know, king such and such over there. What do you? know? It was a private, personal, intimate conversation. He invested in their lives. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, Well, they have a reputation lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. It matters. It counts how you run the race. He wants us to run not in vain, but with intention. Just as an athlete is called with intention, it's that same idea here. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, please. To your left, two books. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 24. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? He says, they're runners. That's what they do. They're in a race. They should run. They're not in a race to sit down at the starting line. They're not in a race to get distracted and pull off. No, they're in a race to run. We're in a race to run. But one receives the prize and run in such a way you may obtain it. The idea here he's saying is that when we run a race with intention, if we're in that race, we're not just simply running the race to go, boy, I hope I finish. You know, maybe I'll stop off for a little cheesecake or something along the way and I'll make my way. No, I'm running the race with everything I've got, with all that's in me. And I'm running with the intention of finishing that race. You know, friends, I liken it to and I've, I just picture this way in my mind. The race that God has placed before each and every one of us. Do you know who I picture at the finish line or the checkpoint? I picture Jesus because I know he's there. And I picture him with his arms wide open saying, come. You're going to make it keep going. I know you're tired. I know you're weary, but keep running. Don't quit. Don't quit. Keep running. You're almost there. I know you can't see what's around the corner. I know it's frightening. I know you think, what if there's another hill? I don't know if I can take it. I don't know what's going to happen next. And he just says, come, run. Run. And your heart's just open wide, man. He's just there. And he wants to hold us and he wants to pull us in. And give us an embrace we have never experienced in our lives. Ever. Not from your your closest loved one. Nothing's going to compare to it. To be in the embrace of God, your creator and maker. Who created heaven and earth. Who designed all of eternity to spend it with you in fellowship, what it was like to walk in the garden hand in hand with God without any distance, without any separation, to have the fullness of that again, perfect. That's what awaits you and I. And that's who's calling you. And that's who's staying there saying, you can do it. Keep coming. Don't quit. I love you. I love you. I love you. Keep running. He wants us to understand that. Run in such a way that you're going to obtain the prize. What is the prize? It's Christ Jesus. Run as though you're going to obtain it with everything that you have. Turn to Hebrews, please. Hebrews chapter 12. Go past Philemon, Fly, Philemon, Philemon. Get to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 1, please. I want you to see the fullness of the race that you and I are in and what we're called to do in the race. I don't want there to be a single person that leaves here this morning that doesn't understand the race that's before you and what your responsibility and role is in that race. You're a runner. You're not a bystander. to participate, and to run the race he's called you for. Not to be looking at another race track that's right next to you, and somebody else running a different race, and to have an opinion or a comment on that. Well, his race looks a lot easier than my race. Really? Did you know his 12-year-old son just died And the race that's before him? Do you have any idea that his wife just left him We have no idea. We we look from the out to look in, but we can't see clearly. It's half dim right now, we read. We have no idea the way people are struggling and suffering, but they're running the race. It's not a comparison or a competition of how fast you run to compare how fast I run or somebody else runs. It's looking to Jesus, who's the end of that race, and giving it everything we got, holding nothing back, and redeeming the time with all intention. And that's what it is to compete. If you've ever competed at a a level where you were compensated or it was more than just a hobby, there is no failure. You die. You die trying. You leave everything there. Broken bones, broken arms, it doesn't matter. Mend it, I'm going back in. We have athletes every day that have that demonstration of commitment. And yet, Christians, the church is impotent. Pastor, that's strong. Wake up. Awake from the slumber. Your redemption draws nigh. We are in the last of the last days. Run like you have never run before. Like you've never ever run before. Therefore, chapter 12, verse 1, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, there's no denying it. Let us lay aside every weight. Do you realize there's people carrying around weights, running a race, weights of life, distractions? Anything between your soul and God is idolatry. Anything between your heart and God is idolatry. That could be a a husband, a wife, a child. It could be a job. It could be a career. It could be friendship. It could be anything without proper balance anything that detracts us or pulls us away from Jesus is not running the race to the fullest. It's being distracted. There are many people that are going to stand on the sidelines and say, hey, you look tired, man. You're sweaty. You best have been running a good race. Why don't you come on over here and have a cup of water? Just talk to me for a little bit. Let's take a break. There's fun to be had. Don't worry. The finish line will be there. It's not going anywhere. Really. The Bible says it's unto a man. Every single man will die. And the days of a man are numbered. And we have no idea if there will be a tomorrow. We are just grateful for today. What are we doing with the gift given today, the present that we've been given? That's what he's talking about. When he says that that weight that you've been running with, it's time to lay that weight down, amen? Lay it down. I don't care what it is, a hobby, a job, whatever. If something is calling you not to run your race with all intention, with all diligence, it's time to lay that weight down, it isn't the yoke of Jesus Christ. That's the only yoke you're to put on. He didn't call us to be jugglers. We're not clowns for his entertainment, to juggle like, you know, all these things three, four houses, all this, thing, cars, all these things. And we wonder why we're stressed out. That's not the calling he's given us. Look, I'm not saying God doesn't bless us, he does. He blesses every one of us, some more, some differently. Praise the Lord. But that's not the aim or the focus. That's a gift given by God to whom can handle it. He says it, and the sin that which so easily ensnares us. He says it right here. I, I let us run with endurance. Now we found out it's just not a sprint. It's not a quick sprint. This is an endurance race. It's a marathon. That is set before us. Anybody here run races? Compete in any way? I, lo- I love when <laughs> my previous counseling sessions I used to do with guys sometimes, you know, maybe struggling with addiction. Watch, nobody's going to come see me for addiction anymore. They'd come into the office and say, I just can't do it, man. I can't break it. I'm really struggling. I'm saying, man, I know what it's like. I, I had alcohol. Pro- I had a lot of problems before Christ Jesus. He set me free. I never have to go back to it. I'm I'm not a slave to that anymore. I'm a slave to Jesus. That's the only place I want to belong. But I get these guys in my office, and, um, you know, they're like, I'm from Missouri. You got to prove it. You got to show me. Show me I'm from Missouri. Some of you know that saying. So I say, drop and give me 20. What, Pastor? What did you just say? I said, drop and give me 20. Uh, I'm 50 years old. I don't know that I can make it 20. I don't know that I can make it 10. I think I'm going to have a heart attack. That's okay. I can call the EMT. Don't you worry about that. You're saved. You know where you're going. Don't you worry about it. We're in a good place here. And they look at me like, are you serious? And I'm like, yes. They need an action sermon. No matter what I say to them, no matter what scripture I give to them, it's a moment of unbelief. That's what it is. I know that. I think even they know that but the point of, the point of coming to that conviction is not my work it's the work of the Holy Spirit but but I want to help it along a little right not that I need to help God but so they'll start and they'll say well I'm one two count it out one two three four they get up to ten I think even they're surprised I know most of the time I don't know how many push-ups I could do anymore but I'm sitting there okay they get to about 12 and you know some of you've done push-ups your hands start shaking. Right? You know that feeling? Everything starts shaking. You're trembling. You get that feeling your heart's beating like a rabbit. And they're like 13, 14. I can't. Now, what if I said, you're right. You can't. It's okay to quit. What do you think they would do? They'd quit. They'd stop right then and there, dead flat, lay on the ground and say, you're right. I can't do it. But if I'm whispering in their ear, you can do it. You have this. You can do through all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. Four more. Come on now. Three more. Two more. One more. Now do two more for good measure, just because you can. And they pop it out and they sit up and they roll over. And they're like, this is the best counseling I've ever had in my life. No, nobody ever says that. Why don't they say that? I'm thinking, man, we had a breakthrough. They're sweaty and they're like, we're never going to see this guy again. I've joked. I said, you come to see me three or four times, I've given you everything I got. I got nothing new. It's the word of God and him crucified. And if that's not enough, I don't know what, what is. But sometimes we need that proof. What enables them? It's that confidence. It's that I can do it. It's the, it's the Jesus Christ going for us. Yes, you can. And you will. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing us in us every moment of every day. Constantly encouraging us. And that's what he has for us. That we can be overcomers in Christ Jesus. And that's what he says here, that you would endure looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Do you see that? You're not the author. I'm not the author. God is the author. He is the one that strengthens you. He is the one that gets you across the finish line. He is the one that gives you the ability to do that. We're in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? Who's waiting for you and I? Jesus. Jesus, precious Jesus, right? Now, well, Pastor, that's good, and I appreciate that New Testament, New Covenant example. What about the believers in Christ in the Old Testament? Did they understand these things? Well, yes. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 in your Bibles. I love the way verse one begins. Comfort, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. But I want to draw you to attention, or your attention, to verse thirty-one. But those, chapter forty of Isaiah, verse thirty-one. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Do you see that? They shall mount up. With wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There's times to walk and run, but either way, we are in purpose, intentional, on purpose, intentional, towards the finish line. And that's what we see here. That's what he's telling us. 2 Timothy 4, 7. Look at this. This is his swan song. 2 Timothy's Paul's swan song. The last epistle he wrote before eventually he'll go to be with the Lord. This is the last writing. Look what he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. How did it work for Paul? How did his race go? He says, I have what? Fought the good fight it's a struggle. It doesn't come easy. It's intentional and it's a struggle. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. What was the goal? I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not me only, but all, but also to all those who've loved his appearing. What's the reward, friends? Is it the crown or is it Jesus? And then what do we do with the crowns? We cast them at the feet of Jesus. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. You can turn back to Philippians now. All that in verse 16. Look at verse 17. Now he says, yes, I am being poured out as a a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. He says, I'm being poured out that way. This is a direct, again, for our Jewish audience, this was a direct uh, response to Numbers chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. If you read that in context, it talks about, it's an offering, this idea, this sacrifice, it's for joy. It's it's what the believer did in regards for joy. In Numbers chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Paul is alluding to that, he's showing us that. And he goes on to say that right in 18. He says it's a drink offering. Sacrifice a service under your faith. It's worth it. Even if it's one soul, it's worth it. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. It's beautiful. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. It's all God's timing, isn't it? For I have no one like-minded, speaking of the same heart and mind, a pastor's heart, an under-shepherd's heart, a servant's heart, a minister's heart, who will sincerely care for your state, someone that I would entrust to you. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. It's back to verse 5. Not everyone has the mind of Christ. It's like Saul and David, as we're reading in First Samuel chapter 16. As we read in chapter 13 of First Samuel, verse 14, he told us that I have chosen one after my own heart. And Saul, in first Samuel chapter 16, well, 15, really, is a man after his heart, not God. It's all about Saul. But you know his proven character, that as a son, speaking as a son in the faith, with his father, speaking of Paul, everybody needs a Barnabas, a son of encouragement. Everybody needs a Timothy, a son in the faith. And everybody needs a Paul, a pastor's heart. With me in the gospel, there was unity because they were in it together. Therefore, I hope to send him once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Not that he doubted. He would already told us in chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. He believed he was coming, but he never presumes upon God. This is good wisdom. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. He says it. I believe I'm going to come, but God's will be done. Yet I consider it necessary to send you to... Epaphradidas. That's how we say his name in the Greek correctly. Epaphrodidas. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. He was a partner. What was he a partner in here? If you look at it, look at verse 18. Indeed, that's chapter 4. I have all, I have all in abound. I am full, having received. Now, some of you may prefer Aphroditus or Ephrodites or Epaphroditus. Uh, feel free to say it however you want. E. The thing sent from you a sweet smelling aroma and an acceptable sacrifice well-pleasing to God. What was he talking about? The church in Philippi sent a love, basically a love offering from the Lord, but he sent it as a, 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 to meet the needs of Paul while he was imprisoned. A financial gift is what he's saying. They sent, the church of Philippi sent Paul a financial gift. And they say they were partnering, he was saying, right? Back to verse 26, he says, look, I appreciate the one who ministered to my need. Apparently, Paul had a need while he's in Roman prison. All his finances and meals were met, but maybe there was other things like medicine or different things, I don't know, that he had need to buy. And somehow, uh, Philippi and the people of Philippi were meeting that need through their financial gift to Paul. Since he was longing for you, and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So Paul wants to assure those in Philippi that, you know, he wants to give them a peace about what's going on with their brother. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. We realize this is not just a cold or a flu, that he was going to die. And Paul's response to that in reckoning and understanding of this, very good for you and I, is it all has to do with mercy, the mercy of God. He says... For indeed, he was almost sick unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me or me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, right? Because it's a serious illness. He's concerned sorrow upon sorrow. Hold this here. Look at Psalm 57. This is a beautiful psalm I want to leave with you as we get ready to close here. Psalm 57. I, I want you to, if there was ever a psalm to right in your margin or hold on, because we will. If you haven't, you will go through difficulties in life, whether it's a disease or a sickness or or just a financial hardship or something that comes your way. Psalm 57 is my go-to. I love to wake up, and when I'm having those, days, I just read the promises of God. This psalm was originally given to David through the Holy Spirit, right? When he fled From Saul, as Saul was, you know, chasing him and going after him to kill him, he fled into the cave, and the Lord gave him this to encourage David to let him know that I have not left you and I am with you. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For my soul trusts in you and in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, they will pass by. I will cry out to the God most high, the God who performs all things for me. He shall send me, or he shall send from heaven and save me. He, re- he reproaches the one who would swallow me up, Selah. Think about it. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, who teach or teeth, excuse me, are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. In the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. How often that will happen. Selah. My heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praises. Awake my glory. Awake lute and harp, a small guitar-like instrument. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be filled above all of the earth. He makes us worshipers, doesn't he? Be merciful, O oh God, be merciful. God will show favor to whom he chooses to show favor. Paul witnessing it, recognizing it, and giving the glory to whom it is deserved. That the you like the way I say that, don't you? Keep you on your toes. Epiphradatitas. He recognized his life was a gift of mercy from God. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. What men? Men like this brother. Why? Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death. That's how he ran his race. He ran the race in a way that he was all in. That even his life would not come before Jesus. Nothing would. Not regarding his life to supply what was lacking. That's interesting. There was something going on. Maybe they had promised to send a financial love gift or something like that to Philippi. We don't know, and I don't, if the Bible's silent, we're silent. But clearly there was something about the reasonable service, the service that was to be provided to Philippi, that was missing. But because this man was willing to risk his life for the namesake of Jesus Christ, it was fulfilled. And he's not just talking about this man's life but the role of what God was doing in that church in Philippi. Every single member, every single person, has purpose in Christ. Every member of the church, everyone of the body of Christ has purpose. He said, because it was lacking in your service towards me. You see, I think, friends, we learn, and we'll close here right now. I think the things we learn here, my friend, My friends, is that when we put Jesus before everything else, it is a life well lived. It is a race well run. And we must run with endurance. We must run with our eyes focused on the prize. And remind me what the prize is again. Jesus Christ. It's not the crown. It's not the crown. Because if we're being honest, every one of us, with our motives, what have we ever really done, completely surrendered to God with a perfect motive? I can say nothing. I can say nothing before you. And that's why the crown of righteousness or the crown I receive from God will easily and aptly be, you know, thrown right to the feet of Jesus Christ Because I could do nothing good of myself, but only through the Holy Spirit in me. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, as you've just overheard and anointed your word, Lord, seal it into our hearts that, Lord, this morning, Lord, you've lit the fire again. That we have a direct purpose from you, Lord Jesus, to glorify you and honor you in all ways, to run the race you've put before us, Lord, with intention, not looking to my left or my right or our brothers or sisters, but looking to the prize, you, Jesus, who await us with arms wide open, a love that we've never experienced and a fullness that we long for, Lord. Jesus, we pray, come. Come the Lord. Lord, until that redemption draws nigh, until that point, Lord, let us be all in, fully surrendered. To you be the glory. Lord, I pray a blessing upon your people here this morning. Those online, those in the cafe, Lord, bless your people with good health and safety. That, Lord, as they run the race, there would be no distraction of health, no disease, no plague, no famine, nothing that would come near them. That they would run their, strength, run their race with strength, Lord, like they've never, ever experienced before. Not looking to themselves, but knowing that all things come through you, Jesus. Bless them and keep them today, Lord. Let your face so shine upon them and give them your perfect peace, God. We pray all this in your mighty name, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And all God's people prayed, amen. God bless you all. I love you all. Go forth in the strength of Jesus Christ.